if I was tired, I said I was tired. If I had, you know, a conflict, I said I had a conflict. I still got my job done. I knew how to do it well. And um, it was incredibly hard, but I went back to work in the most genuine and sort of authentic way I knew how. Welcome to Work Like a Mother, sharing real conversations with inspiring women juggling work, life, and motherhood. I'm Bridget Garsh, co-founder of Neighbor Schools, and today I'm so excited to chat with Lauren Smith-Brody, founder of the Fifth Trimester Consulting to foster workplace gender equality and the author of The Fifth Trimester, The Working Mom's Guide to Style, Sanity, and Success After Baby. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. Of course. So you started working for Glamour Magazine not long after college. Right. And you became the executive editor. Mm -hmm. Can you share that journey with us? Sure. So it was very much in... Before anybody was talking about work-life integration, it was because I was there for so long and because I was there for just so many really kind of life establishing years. Um, it, a lot sort of got all rolled together in that time. Um, so publishing as an industry went through a big boom and a big decline in the 13 years that I was there. And what was cool about being at Glamour is that it was at the time, um, the term that was sort of used in the elevators at Condé Nast is it was the cash cow of Condé Nast. Now it is no Publishing is completely turned upside down, and that's just probably not the case anymore. But at the time, um, wherever Glamour went was where the company went. So we did a lot of trying new um, new sort of avenues for revenue, and we had a really um, visionary editor-in-chief um, who raised her hand for a lot of things. We had a huge staff, and so we had a lot of resources to be able to try new things out when, you know, sort of the financial forecast may not have been great. We were the first ones to say like, okay, great. Well, we'll try to turn our award show into a television show. Okay, great. We'll take these three columns and turn them into, you know, um, books in a book deal. And because of the positions that I had at the time that was happening, I was able to try a lot of those things. And I had sort of, I don't want to say mastered because I don't think I've ever, I've ever mastered anything, but I had kind of grown as an editor and a signer, a writer, um, as much as I kind of could. And so it was great to be able to try things that were actually uncomfortable for me and new, new ways of sort of delivering information, content and marketing to a new audience. Um, so that was cool um, in terms of just sort of professional growth in that time. I had, I think five or six different roles in my 13 years there. Um, but simultaneously when I showed up at Glamour for my first day, I, or my, I should say my first Friday at Glamour, I wheeled a wheelie um, suitcase to work because I was going to hop on the train and go down to Philadelphia afterwards for the weekend to visit my boyfriend. And we switched off weekends. And, um, you know, over you know, a few years later, that boyfriend became my fiance. And a few years after that, we had a child, our first child. A few years after that, we had our second child. So there was just this major life evolution that happened over that time. And by the time I had my first son, I had really... Um, I was an executive at that point, and I had probably a little more, um, you know, sort of leeway and privilege than maybe some of my other colleagues had had when they had their kids. And I was able, I've worked with, you know, dozens of women mostly. So I was really able to see a lot of different approaches to motherhood and career. I didn't really see anybody being as open about stuff that was hard about it as mm -hmm. I felt like I could have used. And so 
in my nature, you can probably tell where we're talking on, you know, Zoom video. Now you can see my face shows everything. Like I cannot tell a lie to save my life. And it is, I've learned to work with that as a good quality, not a bad one, even in spin. Um, and so I just, if I was tired, I said I was tired. If I had, you know, a conflict, I said I had a conflict. I still got my job done. I knew how to do it well. And um, it was incredibly hard, but I went back to work in the most genuine and sort of authentic way I knew how. I, I did not believe I even wrote a story at some point about like, don't fake it till you make it because mm. we can't solve problems we can't see. So in many ways, it actually ended up being um, an attribute that I was so able to be like pretty naked about what was hard about new parenthood in the workplace. What made you realize that it was really a strength to be transparent about how hardworking parenting is? I came to that realization of the strength of that. There was one really just sort of pivotal moment when a colleague came to me after my first maternity leave and I was back and we were puzzling over some layout, um, figuring out a headline of what would fit, you know, sitting at my desk and, and she just sort of stopped and she was like, I'm so glad you're back. Thank you so much. This is great. Like I've needed, you know, this, like exactly what you can do is what I've needed to make my job easier. Mm -hmm. And I said, Oh, thanks. And she goes, and also just like, thanks for being so honest. She's like gesturing to my breast pump on my desk about, you know, what's about being a working mom. And I thought, Oh God. And I was still a little bit young for the position I was in. And so I thought maybe I'd done something wrong Mm -hmm. um, by being so open. But in that pause of, you know, my own discomfort, not knowing what to say, she continued. And she said, because you've shown me, I can do it one day too. And I thought, Oh, and she said, because it looks really hard, but like now I see that like it can be hard and you can still do it. And that was just a life changing moment for me. I went on to have a second child. My husband was in medical school and then in his residency. So there was, I was very much the, um, the primary breadwinner for many years by like, you know, a factor of like four. Um, so we were, I didn't have a lot of guilt or sort of choice about whether or not I was going to continue working. We needed my income. There was always an assumption that, that I would. Well, as you were talking about your breast pump yeah. being on your desk, I'm pumping right now oh, during our conversation. I love it. You know, I, I love was thinking about how, <laughs> yep, I can relate to this. It's, it's yeah. happening in this moment. So yeah. After that conversation with my colleague, I realized like, this is really a strength. I, then it took me, you know, years from that point to sort of come up with the concept of the fifth trimester. When, um, when I'd had my first son, I had undiagnosed, um, postpartum anxiety and he was like sort of a fussy baby. I mean, not really anything that unusual, but I had a really hard time. And, um, I read about, you know, the Harvey, I read the Harvey Cart book, the happiest baby on the block and learned about the fourth trimester. So that sort of planted the seed for me of this idea that, you know, it takes 12 weeks for a baby to really wake mm-hmm. up to the world and be a real baby, baby that you mm-hmm. thought you were having. In fact, the outfit that I took to the, um, to the hospital with me when I gave birth to him didn't fit him till he was four months old. Oh, and, and he was like a fully, he was like three days shy of 40 weeks. Like he was a baby, like a real baby. <laughs> we had, it's funny that you say that with my first, we brought all these clothes and it was very similar. Like everything was giant. He was spinning mm-hmm. and it was flopping on him. And so then the second time, um, when with my youngest, we brought all these newborn tiny outfits and he was big baby. He was nine pounds, four ounces. So wow. nothing, nothing fit him. I mean, you know, like the best laid plans. This is what parenthood teaches us is to be extremely flexible at all times. Right. Exactly. Um, so anyway, so I, I just, so, so, so sort of that idea of the fourth trimester gave me this notion that like, okay, so 12 weeks is really when babies wake up to the world, but Hey, like I get, 
and I had a full 12 week um, FMLA maternity leave. Some of it was covered by disability. A little bit of it was paid in addition to that by my employer. There were a couple of weeks unpaid that my husband and I were able to save up for. We had kind of everything working in our favor to make it okay. And it was still really hard. And what I came to realize as I did some research and I started talking to other new moms is that, you know, this notion of 12 weeks is really, really normalized in our society by FMLA, which was signed into law in 1993. And it was always, when you look back at the history of it, it was actually meant to be 26 paid weeks. And that number came out of the science of what is most protective of mom's mental health, mom's physical health, baby's physical health, mom's ability to maintain her career and her income and dad or partner's bond with baby. All of that is, you know, wrapped up in, in six paid months of leave, which we didn't have access to. And so there's a lot of mom guilt associated with going back. If it doesn't feel like it's okay, there's too much to do. It's, it's just too much for us all to take on. And you think that's your fault because it's very normalized by society for somebody to say like, oh, did you get your whole 12 weeks? Right. And, you know, the reality is the average FMLA taken by an American woman is 8.5 weeks only 56% of workers even have access to any unpaid leave. Um, and, and, you know, and we see that these, you know, these norms being challenged and changed by private corporations and organizations, which is great, but those are largely um, jobs that are held by, you know, by non-minority, well-educated, you know, already somewhat privileged people anyway. And, you know, so I went through, you know, I went, went, kept my, kept going in my career, kept trying to sort of be as open as I could be and become a better manager along the way. My husband eventually did finish his training, thank God. Um, and eventually I was able to take this notion that I had of this fifth trimester of this transition back to work after baby, which is such a gap in our society. You're back before you're ready to be. And then finally it's time to be ready to be. And here you are and 30% of women opt to um, basically opt out to take a step back or to not continue in their career around the first year of having a baby. So what could I do to help these new moms? I did a lot of research nationally. I wanted to look at um, unmarried moms, um, single moms by choice, um, same-sex partnered moms who'd carried the baby, not carried the baby, hourly wage working moms, Fortune 500 executive moms, the whole gamut to see what we had in common, what we had working for and against us, and what lessons we could share with you know, each other having learned things the hard way. I decided to leave Glamour. I wrapped all of that research into my book, and um, the book is now out in the world doing its job supporting moms. And um, within about a year of the book coming out, I really turned it into a business where I realized that in order to scale this message of scaffolding and support for that gap of the fifth trimester, I needed to really have a corporate presence. And so now most of the work that I do, some of it is individual coaching where I'm hired by a company to coach their new moms. Much of it is um, speaking now webinars in COVID times, of course, um, and consulting, helping people, helping companies figure out policies that are fair and inclusive. A lot of them are startups that are, you know, just haven't had, you know, they'd suddenly have a parent who has a need that hasn't been expressed before or a caregiving need. It's not even a parental need, but something for maybe older elder care. And, uh, and so I come in and help them figure out what those policies should look like. And then very often we'll do an event with their employees to help roll it out and announce it and to help people feel supported with actual research. How has your passion for journalism driven this project? I'm still a journalist, so the work that I do is is very much evidence-based, research-based. I'll tell you what I'm not an expert in and what I don't know, but I will go find someone who's an expert to answer a question. Um, so that's my approach, and that's what I do now. And um, and I love 
every minute of it. And this, uh, this transition to, to COVID times um, has been in many ways um, really eye-opening um, to sort of see how, how flexible I can be in, in my definition. I coach women all the time to say like, how, you know, what's, how do you define success in a day? And I've had to really redefine it for myself. And a lot of what I teach is equity in, um, in the home and in, you know, earning potential for you and your partner, if you are a partnered parent and, you know, like lo and behold, March 12th hit, my kids were home from school. My husband is a doctor at a hospital. He's an essential worker. who was gone 14 hours a day. Then he got COVID and he was like, you know, he was, he was, he's fine. And he did, he had a pretty mild case and was isolated in our bedroom. But, you know, this woman who spends her days doing, you know, this work of, of like pay equity and equality mm-hmm. in the home mm-hmm. is serving her husband his breakfast, lunch, and dinner on a tray placed outside of our bedroom door while I sleep on the sleeper couch and take care of our kids. And it was a real, it was a real kick in the gut to figure out, you know, how do we make this work? And so a lot of the work I'm doing now is helping other families um, figure out what their new temporary balance looks like and helping companies figure out how to do a better job of supporting those families. What would be the number one thing you recommend to companies that you wish they started to do more of? Supporting the need for childcare um, more than anything else. Um, so there, team by team, you can make, um, you can see a real variation in how managers, you know, handle what we're going through now. And, you know, I can talk to 10 women at the same company in 10 different offices and, they will have, there will be things that they have in common. And then there will be things that the challenges that they really don't have in common. Some of that is very much about just their personal circumstances, but some of it's about who their manager is, right. And like whether or not they've gotten the memo about like how to be a reasonable person at this time and still help your team be productive. Mm -hmm. But the things that they do have in common end up being really, um, um, loyalty, um, building. So, you know, if they know that they have access to some paid leave right now, if they need it, um, and that they've been encouraged to take it and they've been informed of it, if they're legally allowed to have it. Um, if they know that, you know, their company values, um, their need to be able to take care of their children and their own health. And they have, you know, there's, there's been, you know, a new say mental health benefit that's been added, that's been rolled out like right now, or that's always been there, but hasn't really been, you know, well used and is now like really announced in a way that's like here, it's here, please use it. We understand you need to take care of yourself. That's great. Um, and then childcare benefits. I mean, this is, this is, hold on one second. No, no, sorry. <laughs> Perfect timing actually. Yeah. Oh, hi. <laughs> Can you say hi? Hi. Hi. Oh, how are you? Can you say hi? Hi. Hi. <laughs> All right, you go with Nini now. <laughs> I mean, just in this conversation alone, there have just been so many moments of reality happening. Oh, yeah. I think there's actually there's a lot that our kids are learning right now about. It's true. And I'll get back to what we were talking about a minute ago, but um, you know, for, for the years I've been doing this, I've, I've preached from on high, like the, the um, value of bringing your whole self to work and mm-hmm. being really open and honest about your parenthood in, in your workplace and with your work community. And, you know, just kind of maybe a year ago, I started actually adding the, the, the other side of the coin to that lesson, which is don't be afraid. And this is inspired by the fact that my kids are getting a little older now. 
don't be afraid to bring your work home, which like, you know, and then go figure. Now we all have brought, right. many have brought our yes. work home, right? But don't be afraid of that. Don't be, don't hide it. Don't try to, you know, say to them, you know, like that you are, conf- I mean, you can, you can tell them if you're conflicted about the time you're spending, but you know, I think it's actually, there is a lot for them to learn about the dedication mm-hmm. and the pivoting and the, um, the de- just dexterity and, for them to see that, that this is hard, but we're doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. It's a lot like that colleague of mine back at Glamour those years ago. Like it's better for them to see that something is hard mm-hmm. and that we're getting through it than it is for them to just not see the problem at all. It's true. And um, they're so, they are also resilient and adaptable and yeah. in more ways than we give them credit for. And oh. about this specifically, he now will come over and ask and say, are you all done working? Um, and so he really, he really has adapted and he knows. All right. Back to my question about how employers can support their employees. Generally speaking, I, the recommendation that I make to employers who are like, how can we support our employees with, you know, childcare needs is really to offer as many options as possible. Um, very often that is, that looks like a stipend, um, more than anything. Cause there's just no, there's no, um, there's no preconceived notion of what your childcare or your, your caregiving needs are going to look like. If they just like say, here is this money for this time, use it as you will. You may be able to fly your mom in, you know, to help you with your children. You may want to enroll in the essential daycare down the street, or, or there may be, um, you know, wonderful in-home daycare close by that would be a great option for your family. You just need those options. And sometimes if an employer says, okay, here's this one you know, we're going to have daycare on site. You know, mm-hmm. it may not suit the needs of everybody exactly. And in some ways, that's almost easier for employers too. Um, but as many options as they can offer people, you know, the better. And when you were doing all of your research and you were talking to so many different women and you really made a point of covering many different life circumstances, what surprised you most? about what they have in common? And then what surprised you about the differences? I think the most start, you know, stark just bit of information was how perfectly their answers synced up with the science that I was only learning simultaneously. So um, when I asked them, you know, when did you feel back to, back to kind of normal-ish, you know, emotionally, when did you feel back to normal-ish physically? And that wasn't back in your genes. It's just like, I feel comfortable in my skin again. Right. It really was. I think one was like 24 weeks and one was 25 weeks. It was right around that six-month mark, um, which showed me that the the data set I had, and I'm, I am no statistician, you know, but it, it showed me that it was pretty representative. You know, this is a very human need kind of no matter what your background is. Um, and, um, sleep was another really, really big, um, eye opener for me. Cause I think that there are a lot of, um, a lot of things that we do in our own homes that feel like this has been passed down generationally or culturally. So my mom sleep trained, I'm the oldest of four kids. I never had any doubt that I was going to do it. I, I still, my husband had to like physically sit on me when we did it to get me to keep me from getting out of bed. Like it was incredibly, incredibly hard, but I knew that I would do it. And I don't judge any mom who doesn't want to, or who does want to, or wants to do it at whatever age. Um, but it was, it was interesting to see the things that we, we don't have um, in common sort of culturally mm-hmm. and how that impacts our, our norms. Um, but sleep was a huge one. Um, and, and what I found when I asked moms, 
and my approach was always not about the baby because I'm, I'm actually not a baby expert, um, you know, but my approach was about the working mom. So what's most supportive for her? So when I asked um, in the, the survey I did was um, of 732 moms. And so when I asked them, when did you start sleeping seven hours consistently yourself, which is sort of you know, kind of like baseline minimum of like a, a decent night's sleep for a mom is it would be seven hours, um, not fragmented, but actually like get seven hours of sleep. And the average answer was a little bit over seven months postpartum, which surprised me because my bias, my sense of norm was that like I needed that baby sleeping by the time I went back to back work, to which work. was 12 weeks. And so neither of my boys was sleeping by 12 weeks. I got right. them at like, I really forced the issue and they both started sleeping by about like 14, 15 weeks. But some of that's biology. Some of that's because I like forced the issue. Some of that's because we had, you know, with my second son, we had a nanny at that point point who was coming in, you know, early enough in the morning that if I looked like hell, I like had time to like get myself together. You know, there's a lot of factors that work, um, you know, for and against people, but it was interesting to me to see that like, actually it's again, right at about that six, seven month mark, which shows this gap of the fifth trimester. And when I talked to the sleep experts I talked to were experts in maternal sleep and the family. One of them, um, there's these two amazing women um, who are both PhDs. Um, one is named Wendy Troxel and one is named Hallie Montgomery Down. They gave really concrete advice about how to deal with sleep deprivation and how to make it more you know, equitable. And um, one thing that came out of those interviews this was also um, this notion that we have normalized in our society that mom is doing the waking up, mm -hmm. particularly if mom has had a longer parental leave than dad or partner has had. And I think a lot of those early patterns that we set up, you know, can still be showing up into our kids, you know, preteen years. I, I've seen it myself. And as much as we can do to legitimize the work of caring for children, um, really early on and understanding that like, you may say, you know, oh, my husband has to go off to a job in the morning. Well, the job that you're doing waking up in the morning and taking care of that baby is keeping a human alive. That's a job, right? Like that is absolutely an incredibly vital job. And one thing I think we're seeing more than we had before, um, before COVID is, you know, certainly there's an exacerbation of, of the pay gap and we see mm -hmm. more women dropping out of the workforce than men. And that's bad news. But when you think about what we call invisible labor, the things that, you know, a parent puts into taking care of the family that the other parent may not be aware of, it's all there. It's all for everybody to see if we're all home together right now. And so be, you know, be as bare as you can about it and try to be as equitable, you know, in, in dividing up that labor. Yeah, such, such important observations and really advice and reminders to everyone as well. I think um, as I reflect on my own circumstances, especially having just had a baby and being in the fifth trimester myself, mm -hmm. that you are right. I never, especially being, uh, I'm breastfeeding my, my mm -hmm. son now. And so I never really questioned who's getting up at night, who's, right. who's the one that is caring for him when, when he needs to be fed in the middle of the night. But it's so easy to discount that. Yeah. There's strategies. And look, you know, I breastfed my babies too. And I, I pumped at work and I, you know, I was the one who was waking up in the night to feed them. Um, mm -hmm. I also had a husband who was in his medical residency at that point and sometimes was working overnight shifts for a week in a row. So every family circumstance is different. 
but there are little ways. I mean, even if it's just, you know, that the other partner's in charge of washing the bottles or that you do a dream feed from some milk that gets pumped over the course of the day so that mom can get a solid chunk of four hours is really, you want, you know, collectively over the course of the night, you want to try to get, you know, like between seven and nine hours if possible. But it, the the first time, and you know this, you have a newborn, the first time you get four hour a four hour chunk in a row, you wake up the next day feeling like a new person. And then you're like, God, I can't believe four hours of sleep. Maybe feels good. <laughs> it's because it's two REM cycles and two REM cycles is really the bare minimum of what you need. So whatever you can do in your partnership to to protect two REM cycles. So in our case, what we did is I would try to go to bed at like 10. My husband would feed a pumped bottle around 11 and then baby would get back up around two. And so I would have that four hour chunk. Um, it didn't always work, but we, but it's, it's, it is a strategy that has worked for a lot of families. Or there's also this um, awesome <laughs> test you can take online. You're already going to know the answer in your partnership, but it's called the morningness eveningness scale that tells you if you're a morning person or a night person. And this is not true in my partnership, but in most people's partnerships, you choose your opposite. And I think the idea is that like, it comes from cave people time when you were most likely to live and procreate if your fire outside of your cave was tended the most number of hours a day. So think of the baby as the fire. And like, if one of you is a morning person, that person takes more of the morning stuff. And if one of you is an evening person, that person takes more of the evenings. There's, there's all these, there's all these strategies and there's research that actually shows um, kind of ridiculously that there's two things. There's research that shows that when moms are up in the night, dads, and this is all heteronormative research because that's the way it was done. This is mm -hmm. not my, my bias. It's just what, what the research is. So when, when moms are up in the night, dad, dads are less aware of mom being up in the night. When dad gets up in the night, mom is more aware. So there's a lot of tension and resentment, of course, that comes out of mom having been up more. But if dad's not aware, he can't really do anything with that. So you have to kind of have a morning check-in to say, how was your night? How was your night? So that's one thing. Then there's also research that shows into the toddler years. This is Israeli research um, from a university called Ben-Gurion University that shows that when dad is up in the night with a toddler, the lack of sleep that he has is actually offset by the, um, the lack of resentment in his relationship. So he is actually in a better mood if he's been up in the night because he doesn't feel resented by his partner. That was kind of fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That's really crazy. And then, oh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that with, um, that I learned from this research is obviously some of the moms that I talked to are, are domestic workers and caregivers themselves. And I did a story, um, when New York, um, I live in New York, and when New York State rolled out its, um, its paid family leave, I did a story for the New York Times about what happens when the nanny needs maternity leave. Because, which is, it sounds like a, you know, a small segment of the population, but, you know, it's actually, there's, there's a, a big sort of cultural lesson that comes out of the fact that New York's paid family leave law is not just for employers of four or more employees. It is really, it's available to individuals. It's actually even available to undocumented individuals. Um, and so while they're not always comfortable applying and take, applying for it and taking it, you can have, you know, individual caregivers, whether that's a home health care aide or a domestic worker or a nanny in the home um, who are eligible to take paid leave, not really at the expense of the employer, but just through a tiny tax that we all pay into. 
And when I did the interviews for that story, the theme that came up again and again that hadn't, I'm embarrassed to say, really hadn't occurred to me until I did this research. When we treat domestic work like a real job, you know, when it, when it, when you're able as a domestic worker to receive things that you should like, like paid, you know, parental leave, um, it elevates all domestic work that is done by parents in the home. Well, Lauren, I could sit and truly talk to you all day. You are sharing so many interesting facts that you've discovered through your research. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, At the end of every episode, I ask the same question. Mm -hmm. And that question is, what advice would you give to your pre-mom self? Mm. Oh, gosh. You know, so hard. I kind of suffer from what I, what I call internally never enoughness syndrome. And in my, in my old corporate life, when I was working at Condé Nast, I had, I I gunned it. Like I wanted to have a promotion every 18 months. I had measures of success that were very, um, number based, you know, they were like how many hours, you know, how late did the, you know, did the office lights stay on for me? How much money was I making this year? And I have really adjusted since then what I think of as, as success as more sort of what's satisfying, you know, like did my work get done today? Not did I like ring the bell today, you know, but like, was this enough? And to think of things with a longer lens um, and to understand that there are going to be times when I lean way into work and there's going to be times when I lean way into family and that, for me, a cadence of looking back, sort of go figure, like every trimester, but basically every three months or so, then I can see if I feel balanced. Um, but it's not going to be day to day and that that's, that's okay. And that the things that I do for my children um, and for their future, that they count and that the example that I set as a worker is really, really important for them too. And that that is parenting. Even when I'm working, I am parenting. I love that. Thank you. So, so good getting to know you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Bridget Garsh, and this is Work Like a Mother. I'm excited to share another amazing Working Mama story with you next week. But before I go, I have a quick favor to ask. Please help us spread the word by giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way for more working moms to discover our show. Thanks and have a great week.